I'm Father Gregory Pine, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this most recent episode of Off-Campus Conversations, uh, where we seek to follow up with a Thomistic Institute speaker uh, so as to pursue some of the lines of arguments and deepen some of the insights from a recent talk that would have been given on campus or at a conference or at an intellectual retreat. So for this installment, I'm very delighted to be joined by uh, Professor Bruce Marshall. So Professor Marshall, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Father Gregory. Happy to be here. All right. So many of uh, our listeners will be familiar with you and with your work from the contributions that you've made at a handful of conferences or on-campus lectures. But for those who don't know you, would you just say a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, and the work that you're involved in? Absolutely. Um, I am the layman professor of Christian doctrine at um, Southern Methodist University. Um, I and my family are converts to Catholicism. We entered the church in 2005. Um, so like some, uh, some other uh, Catholic theologians um, uh, who were once Lutherans and, uh, and now are, um, are Catholic, um, uh, Catholics and Catholic theologians, um, I'm, I teach in a non-Catholic um, non setting and, um, and do my best to, um, to teach the faith and represent the church uh, uh, in that setting. Um, I have a broad range of interests, um, including, of course, uh, Trinitarian theology, which is our topic today, uh, Christology, a special interest in the relationship of the church with the Jewish people and Judaism, uh, among other things. Okay, wonderful. Um, I was present for a conference at which you contributed uh, on the kind of legacy of the Yale School. Mm -hmm. uh, so with Archbishop Denoya and yourself mm -hmm. and Professor Michael Root, and mm -hmm. it, was, it was it was cool to think about this uh, this notion of a theological school, like an attentiveness to reading texts, a kind of hermeneutic stance, an appreciation for the church's scriptures and tradition. So that mm -hmm. was very formative for me. So yeah, just a quick Good. word of thanks on that Thank before uh, moving on. To the subject of today, which is pursuant to a lecture that you gave at Oxford, uh, the title of which was Medieval Answers to Modern Questions, Renewing Trinitarian Theology Today. Um, so you gave the lecture about criticisms in the 20th and 21st century, sometimes lodged against the Western theological tradition, specifically St. Thomas Aquinas, mm -hmm. when it comes to Trinitarian theology. And um, you laid out some of those arguments, and then you effectively refuted them, uh, relying in part on Father Gilles Emery's work. Mm -hmm. Uh, who's my 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 director? So I was mm -hmm. I was glad to hear that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then um, you went on to describe further, like what needs to be done in the wake of that refutation, because people remain as yet unconvinced, or at the very least unconcerned, that their arguments have been refuted. And one thing I was struck by just in in the beginning of your conversation or beginning of your lecture, I should say, uh, was this idea of like the way that an individual, a theologian, chooses to write. Uh, his theology, mm -hmm. right? So like, what do you start with? Mm -hmm. you, you know, you and you introduce these different material and formal considerations. So like, how do you structure it? How much time do you devote to particular things? How do you make your point of entry? I guess mm -hmm. um, you, you made the point like St. Thomas Aquinas begins in one way in the scriptum, and he begins in another way in the Summa Theologia, just simply to say like, hey, we're not, you know, you don't have to make every work of theology, like comprehensive, wholly balanced, it's like, you're going to have to focus sometimes. So I guess, mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe expanding upon that particular consideration, how much do you think these debates regarding the material or, or, or like the formal structure of works of theology, uh, really get to the heart of the matter? Or is this just like, um, 
Is this just like archaeology for those who are un unwilling to do systematic or dogmatic theology and say? Yeah, I think it's more the latter, um, Father Gregory. Um, uh, several things. I mean, these are, you know, not sort of flattering or positive comments about the state of, of contemporary Catholic theology or Protestant theology as well, for that matter. Um, but in, in the Catholic world, Karl Rahner's uh, Trinitarian theology has had a very big influence. Um, and Rahner actually didn't write that much on the Trinity. Um, I mean, he was a hugely voluminous theological writer, but uh, and wrote interestingly on many, many different topics, but um, he wrote one, basically one long essay on the Trinity, um, which then was published as a book um, in English. It was part of, of a much larger work, uh, uh, a collected work in, in German. Um, and he makes much of this idea that, you know, St. Thomas did something, you know, wrong and, and deeply problematic by by putting, as, as Rahner calls it, the, the one God before the Trinity. But this has led, well, this has led Catholics, you know, to have a kind of, you know, herd mentality. I mean, I don't mean to be, you know, too harsh, but, you know, Rahner said it, and so, you know, that's, We've got a problem here, you know, we've got to do things differently. Um, but why? I mean, what's what's the problem? You know, as you suggested, you can't say everything at once. So why not order your 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 theological work in a uh, a clearly set out way so that your you know sort of principle of um, of ordering, um, is knowable and, and clear and, and stated up front. Um, and so St. Thomas in the Summa Theologia, uh, which uh, as anyone who's, who's familiar with, uh, with St. Thomas, certainly uh, including yourself knows, the Summa Theologia was, was a sort of special work that Aquinas undertook to, um, to get outside the genre of the sentences commentary because he thought the sentences commentary while well, it was something he had done in one of his major works his first major work the sentences commentary is not organized in the most helpful way for students so as he says very explicitly at the beginning of the summa theologia we want a more helpful ordering and he's very clear that the ordering then is going to be one that is, first of all, pedagogically helpful. Those things that are easier to understand come before those things that are more difficult to understand. Uh, and secondly, it's going to be an ordering that is, um, broadly speaking, follows the order of our knowing, although that, you know, has complexities and, and issues that arise on particular points. Um, so the fact that he starts with the divine essence, and it starts in the in the sense of this is where the book begins. Okay? I mean, this is where the the Summa Theologia begins after he treats the you know the science of sacred doctrine and its nature. Um, he starts with the divine existence and then the divine essence and its its characteristics, properties, attributes. 
because, first of all, elements of that are naturally knowable to us and as such are easier for us to grasp, not easy, but easier for us to grasp than, um, than the divine trinity is, which is not naturally knowable to us, which requires special divine revelation for us to know it. So, so at his passage in Rana, where he's uh, in his S, you know, famous essay on the Trinity, or short book on the Trinity, where he says, St. Thomas put the De Deo Uno first, which is not what Aquinas calls it, but never mind. St. Thomas put the De Deo Uno first for reasons that have never been explained. And one sort of says, well, he explains it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he tells you why he's doing it. It's because, you know, this is naturally knowable and therefore easier to understand than the divine trinity, which, which can be grasped. Uh, it's the first and deepest of all the mysteries uh, of divine revelation, but we can have a conceptual grasp of it um, within limits. Uh, but we need to know some things about the divine nature in order to grasp the Trinity with what is what with the conceptual grasp that's available to us. Right? So there's no big mystery as to why or puzzle as to why Aquinas set this up the way he did. It it it's a teaching tool. Um, and as I mentioned, you pointed this out in your in your question. Uh, in, the, in his commentary on the on the scriptum, he's, uh, that, his commentary on the sentences, the scriptum, as as it's called, um, he says, uh, "I'm just going to follow the order of Peter Lombard." Uh, and Peter Lombard started with a bunch of questions on on the divine persons and on the Trinity. He doesn't think that's wrong. He just thinks it's more helpful to go at it in a different way. So I think a lot of the difficulty here. Uh, Father Gregory, is that people have, Catholic theologians um, have grown very used to doing theology in non-scholastic ways. And I'm not saying you, theology has to be scholastic, but I think that, that one of the advantages of scholastic theology um, is precisely this clarity that we don't try to say everything at once. Uh, we don't, we don't have to get all the important things out on the table right at the beginning. So one more observation about this. There's also been commentary, this is related to Christology, a lot of commentary that St. Thomas puts Christ at the end. And people say things like, well he must not think Christ is that important. I mean, he must be kind of, you know, an abstract theist because he puts Christ at the end. Uh, whereas, you know, Karl Barth, for example, um, or uh, other theologians, Karl Barth, a very important 20th century Protestant theologian, they start writing with Christ, you know what I mean? And so that's what you, that's what you should do. You shouldn't wait till the end. Um, well, obviously Christ appears throughout the Summa Theologia, but again, Thomas is very explicit, but what he's doing, he says, now we come at the very beginning of part three, uh, now we come to the consummatio totus negotiae, negotiae theologiae, okay? Sorry to throw a little Latin in here. The consummation of the whole enterprise of theology, Christ, okay? So the whole thing's been aiming at Christ. 
And Christ and his sacraments are the, the consummation, the fulfillment, the perfection, if you like, of the whole project of theology. So, again, he's very explicit about why he sets it up the way he does. And one naturally wonders, why do people regard this as mysterious? Um, and even more, why do they regard it as a big problem? It's not that St. Thomas doesn't think Christ is important. He thinks you'll understand the importance of Christ best when you've understood some other things first. Okay, I have a few thoughts pursuant to that description, and this is helping me also to think through things that I haven't organized in my own mind up until this point. So on the one hand, okay, with respect to organization of the Summa questions, um, I, I'm probably just going to leave that to the side because you've got like a lot of conversations about the Exitus Reditus schema, and then recently uh, Father Kajetan Cuddy recovered and argued for a kind of exemplar, then image, then exemplar image uh, set up of the Summa Theologiae, and he's really attentive there to the prologues of the different parts of the Summa, which, which argument I find very convincing. But, but I'm thinking here specifically about like the mode of exposition and how the mode of exposition is accommodated to the learner. Okay, so he's, he says it's for beginners, right. um, and there's much that's made of that, and Father, or not Father, but John Boyle has, has certainly helped to clarify what that entails or what that means. Like Dominican students with a background in the liberal arts who would have studied philosophy and if, uh, like a modicum of mastery over the kind of propedeutic or antecedents. Um, but also I'm thinking like it's addressed to human beings more basically and human beings, uh, you know, are time bound. And as a result of which their thought is discursive, right? There's, there's antecedent and consequent features to it. So I'm thinking here about his clarification, the prima pars, I don't remember question 12 or 13 talking about our manner of speech and the way in which that somehow complicates the way in which like we predicate things of God. So you've got the thing that's said, the, the race significat, and then you've got the way it's said, you know, the modus significandi. And it's fascinating, like St. Thomas has an attentiveness to the fact that, that we think, to a certain extent, in time. And as a result of which, you know, like we're, we're reading a text which is written in time and we're reading it in time and we're thinking in time. And as a result, you're going to have to choose your battles. And the reason I bring this up is because maybe that helps to bring into focus why certain 20th century and 21st century authors tend to prefer like the poetic or the ecstatic or modes of discourse, which would be more like insight bursts rather than a more scholastic approach to things. And I'm thinking here of like von Balthasar's reliance upon Adrian von Speyer. Um, so I don't know, does that, is there something to that? Um, am I off base? I haven't thought about this previously, so I'm having difficulty formulating it as a question, but it, do you see that in um, certain like, you know, concilium or communio approaches versus mm -hmm. a kind of older scholastic approach? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that you're you're onto something that's um, that's quite important here. Um, uh, I like your phrase insight bursts. Um, I don't know whether that came to you as an insight burst, but I think it's a nice um, <laughs> it's a nice way to to put it. Um, uh, and that, you know, that can be the case with any of these, you know, uh, very formative, um, uh, modern or recent Catholic writers like Rahner and Balthazar, they're often remarkably striking and insightful things they say. Um, but, you know, Tom, St. Thomas points out in the point, one of the questions you were referring to, um, precisely regarding why we have to make distinctions like, you know, the thing signified and the way we signify it, 
why do we have to bother with those kinds of linguistic or, or um, conceptual questions? Because, just to quote him, the thing known is in the knower according to the mode of the knower. So we know whatever we know, from God to mud, we know as human beings, right? We know in a human mode. Um, now, the mode of our knowing can be uh, perfected, um, and that perfection will uh, take place ultimately in the beatific vision. But in our present state, um, the mode of our knowing is precisely, as you say, temporal, which means one thing has to come after another. Um, and scholastic theology, I think, is, is just very helpful in not being in against in, not being against insight bursts, but thinking that part of insight is to be clearly organized, um, rather than sort of having to wade through you know huge passages of prose, you know blizzards of words. Um, to get the nugget that you're looking for. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, that's an issue that, that is important because obviously both Ron and Balthazar and many other Catholic theologians were influenced by them or um, were doing broadly similar things, are concerned about doing Catholic theology in a way that addresses contemporary concerns but also addresses contemporary listeners and readers. And contemporary readers of theology are typically not sort of well-equipped to engage scholastic material. I mean, I, I view that as a kind of cultural deficit uh, that uh, friars, Dominican friars like yourself don't have, especially those studying for doctorates in Freiburg, but but Catholic theology, I think, more broadly tends to have, um, and I, you know, I know this just from years of teaching that, you know, it's much easier to teach um, a highly disorganized writer like Balthazar um, than it is to teach Aquinas because people start reading it and they, they, it's too dense, it's too carefully put together, uh, and they have trouble following. And it takes some education. Um, and this is true not just of St. Thomas, of course, but of any sort of scholastically oriented theology. It takes some education to be ready to benefit from that. Um, I mean, I think it's a really basic problem of contemporary Catholic theology that we we need to not discard the other modes of discourse that you referred to. Um, and there are many others as well, you know, that of great modern saints like St. Therese, for example. I mean, she does not write as a scholastic. I mean, her, she doesn't just have bursts of insight. She has constant insight. Um, so I'm not suggesting that this is the only mode of discourse, but especially Catholic theology as a, as a university discipline, as a, you know, an, an intellectual uh, exertion in behalf of understanding the faith, I think really does need a more needs to be able to re recover a kind of more scholastic culture that can make sense of these kinds of texts um, more readily than we typically do.
Yeah, I think uh, maybe one of the ways in which scholastic theology is described is as articulated, right? So it helps you to address the hinges of reality because once you have a sense for the parts as articulated within a whole, then it's easier to reason from one to the other and back again on account of the fact that you see, you know, inter kind of relations among dependent causes. And um, you have a sense for like the really, like the intelligibility at stake. And so, you know, so like people will say, like, once you've learned, Tom I've heard one person say that it takes about 10 years to learn St. Thomas well, but once you've done that, um, you can kind of, you know, kind of live ad mentem divitome in the sense that you have a knack for what he would probably say. And then you come to discover that you're not too far off. It might depend in part on the patristic sources that he is recovering in the way in which they are engaging with sacred scripture or he himself is engaging with sacred scripture. So that will obviously add particular um, and uh, yeah, like personal flavor to mm -hmm. certain theological responses, but that you right. have this, whereas, you know, with, I've heard it said with certain 20, 21st century authors, um, I'll just take it off the, the theological plane, just talk about Chesterton, for instance. I don't feel like I could ever live ad mentem DV Chestertonian <laughs> because it's so occasional, right? And it's yeah. so, it's very insightful at times, but it's a bit of everything written by a man who was probably up till two in the morning facing a deadline at the Illustrated London Times right. as he ate a mountain full of food so as to <laughs> amuse his giggling nieces and nephews. You know, so it's like uh, you don't get the serene, um, wisdom of a St. Thomas Aquinas, you just get these, these bursts of insight. Right. So maybe then like turning to the habit of mind, which would be better disposed to see reality as it is articulated, um, and to appreciate a theologian who tries to convey or translate some of that insight, what your experience in the classroom, perhaps, um, like what are habits of mind and heart that you try to adduce in your students so as to, you know, like impart some of the things that you would have learned from Lindbeck and Fry, like patience yeah, yeah. with text and yeah. attentiveness to the tradition. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you bringing it back, especially to Lindbeck, uh, George Lindbeck, who was my teacher at Yale, was a very important figure. in. he was a Lutheran theologian um, who was an observer, a delegated observer at Vatican II. And he was a very um, important figure in my life and in Archbishop Denoy's life, as he described at that conference that you uh, that you attended. Uh, back in 2017, uh, but I was very blessed, and I didn't know at the time how much of a blessing this was, that it was he who got me started reading uh, St. Thomas. Um, he was a medievalist by by profession. Uh, when he did his doctorate at Yale in the early 50s, he studied in in Paris with Paul Vigneault, um, uh, wrote a dissertation on, on essentialism and existentialism in, in um in the doctrine of God and uh, in relation to Scotus and St. Thomas. And, uh, and so he, he was a, an unusual Lutheran in that he inhabited the, the scholastic world to a significant extent. Um, I didn't realize how unusual that was until many years later. So I was very, very blessed and, uh, uh, to have studied St. Thomas a lot before I became Catholic. Um, Whoever it was that said you learned St. Thomas in 10 years must have been a, um, a Dominican because um, <laughs> had 10 years of Dominican life and, and daily study to learn it. Um, uh, I feel like I know St. Thomas fairly well, but I, it took me certainly more than 10 years of pretty, pretty steady engagement. But, um, uh, but that's important that uh, one of the things I learned uh, from Lindbeck 
initially, but then even more from St. Thomas. Well, several things. One is uh, just to read carefully, uh, to pay close attention to the words, uh, and to recognize that um, there aren't a lot of wasted words in an author like uh, St. Thomas or any other great medieval uh, scholastic theologian. Uh, it's very dense, carefully wrought discourse. Uh, and if, you know, if theology or sacra doctrina in St. Thomas's term is, is to seek a deeper understanding of what God has taught us about the mysteries of his own life, as St. Thomas puts it in the first question, then the occulty actually says the secrets of his own life. Um, then, you know, being careful, both in writing and in reading, is really important. I think one of the frustrating things about a lot of uh, more recent theology is that it, if, you know, the last paragraph wasn't that easily, you know, that clear or that easily understood or that carefully argued, well, we'll just write another one and, um, and just keep going. Um, and I think that that, you know, makes for, you know, the theologian who's, who's difficult to read uh, in a very different and less helpful way. That is to say, not difficult because it's dense and substantive, but difficult because the theologian isn't clearly organized, isn't arguing carefully, isn't trying to write in a way that will repay close scrutiny. Okay, um, So that's one thing. Read the text very carefully. Another thing, this is really important for me with Lindbeck, uh, and again, he's, he saw St. Thomas as, the, as his sort of guide in this. Uh, always understand a position that you think is wrong better than the person who's advocating. You, you need to seek the most sympathetic reading of a position. If even, you know, like, like Rahner's position on the Trinity, for example, you need to seek the most sympathetic reading of that position that you can come up with. You know, ideally, you need to make better arguments for that position than Rahner does, okay? And then disagree with it, okay? Um, and... He saw St. Thomas, Limit, my teacher, saw St. Thomas as a master in this. Uh, that St. Thomas never scores cheap points against his, uh, or rhetorical points against, you know, his opponents or against those he's arguing with. He always seeks to put the best construction on a position before he makes a counter-argument to it. Uh, and that seems to me to be a hugely important habit of mind for a theologian. And one that uh, I wish were more sort of deeply inculcated uh, in contemporary uh, theology. And of course, part of the reason I feel that way is the you know the the amazing things people say about St. Thomas. You know that did you read what he said? You know, I mean, did you actually look at the words? <laughs> um, and you know, even if you think he's wrong, all right, fine, but. What do you understand his argument to be? I mean, do you give me the best version you can of his argument before you start, you know, disagreeing? 
So if the argument is simply, well, you know, the questions on the one God come before the questions on the divine persons, uh, the questions actually in St. Thomas's own uh, way of putting it, the questions on the divine essence come before the questions on the divine persons. Well, all right, that's true, but that's not an argument. That's just a sort of modest observation. So now what? You know, make, make an argument. Right? <laughs> tell, tell me why this is an issue. You know, and if you were St. Thomas, you know, put yourself in his shoes, all right, if you disagree with him. If you were him, why would you say this? Okay. So same thing, get to turn, turn it around. I mean, all right, well, why does Rahner have the concerns that he does? Um, I, you know, in the lecture that you were, were you know, prompted this discussion, I, I tried to say something about that. I mean, I'm very critical of Rahner in the end, but I wanted to sort of make it clear that he has some concerns that need to be addressed. But rather than seeing St. Thomas as a, an opponent, you know, who, who needs to be overcome in order to address those concerns, he really ought to see St. Thomas as one who can address those concerns particularly well. For example, that the Trinity is, is at the heart of the entire Christian enterprise, the Christian life, Christian prayer, the liturgy, the whole enterprise of dogmatic theology, the Trinity is at the heart of the whole thing. And St. Thomas is actually clearer about that and more consistent about it um, than, uh, than some of the contemporary uh, Trinitarian theologians who criticize him. Um, okay, so that comment and then an earlier comment prompt me to think a little bit about the liturgy. So you were talking about, uh, you know, the, the training that you had with um, Professor Lindbeck when it comes to paying attention to texts. And I'm thinking of a text from St. Thomas Aquinas. I think it's in the treatise on the virtue of religion. And he's describing how one kind of like enters into acts of liturgical worship. And he says, first, uh, one marshals a kind of intention, uh, which is to say, you know, like one fixes the will on it as a desirable end. And then he says, one proceeds to marshal attention. And he lines out like that we attend to the words and through the words we attain to, you know, the concepts and through the concepts we attain to the things, which is a kind of typical semantic triangle. Yeah. Um, but this idea that like through intention to attention, we attain to the very things themselves, right? It mediates a relationship with the reality. And then I'm thinking about, you know, like the last thing that you described with the Trinity at the heart of the Christian life and that theology, um, you know, theological enterprises have a kind of doxological horizon. Um, so maybe, yeah, like in your own, in your own work on this subject, in your own experience of these realities, like the Trinity as the source and the end of theology, does that, does that give, you know, like some, some resource to kind of like find our way through these problems, specifically in the context, you know, of our liturgical life, of our life of worship? Yeah, uh, I think it certainly, uh, it certainly does. Um, so the Eucharistic prayer, um, the Eucharist is the source and the summit of uh, the Christian life. Um, liturgically speaking, I mean, that's not, it, that doesn't compete with the Trinity as the source and the summit of the Christian life, it's just in a different, in a different respect. Um, it's, the Eucharistic prayer is structured with great 
sort of Trinitarian clarity. Um, and as Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was, um, observes in his, I think, really remarkable and important book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, um, true liturgy isn't written. Okay, you don't sit down, you don't send someone off or establish a committee. Okay, now let's write a liturgy. Okay, uh, it emerges organically over time, uh, and it develops, and it is quite astonishing that that the canon of the mass, for example, or what is now um, known as the first Eucharistic prayer in the in the Roman Missal, goes back as far as the fourth century. It's already in Saint Ambrose in its essentially the form in which it existed then for, and still exists, you know, 1,500, 1,600 years later. It is a prayer to the Father in the name of the Son and through the Son and in obedience to the Son in conformity to his command, do this. And it invokes the Holy Spirit as the one whom Jesus will send to unite us to him and through that union with him, which is realized in the Eucharist, which is accomplished in the Eucharist, we will be brought to the Father. Um, so the, the Trinity is not, first of all, a sort of puzzling doctrine, right? And I think this is one of Rahner's worries and, and you know, that of other Catholic Trinitarian theologians who think, you know, we need to sort of get out of the scholastic mindset is, you know, that scholasticism turns the Trinity into a kind of intellectual puzzle. Um, as I said at one point in the lecture, you know, a kind of jujitsu, you know, that we do to sort of square the three and the one. And, you know, I mean, that's a really important problem. I mean, that that's, that's absolutely central to, to Trinitarian theology. But way before that, much more sort of primitively or elementally or primally than that, the Trinity, the triune God is the one who gives himself to us in the Eucharist in a very specifically ordered way. The Father, we, in, we call upon the Father to give us the gift of the Son by the action and grace of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the canon or the first prayer, the third prayer, I think make this remarkably clear. The second prayer is rather short, and so it's maybe a little less clear, but it's still there. I mean, the structure is still there. Um, and, you know, Christian prayer then follows this basic, uh, this basic pattern. Um, you know, what does Jesus say in the, uh, the so-called farewell discourse in the, in the gospel according to John? Uh, I will send the Spirit who will take what is mine and declare it to you, who will lead you into all truth. Well, what is the truth into which he leads us? It's himself. Okay, I am the truth. Um, and as St. Thomas says, um, what is it for Jesus to be the truth? It's for him to be the truth of the Father. And it's, it's for him to be the way in which the Father... Um, knows himself and all things he makes uh, from all eternity is through the Son. Um, so that's what the reality is, the, you know, the race in, in Latin, you know, the, the, the R.E.S., the, the reality of uh, the Trinity that is, that, that is given to us uh, in this very explicitly differentiated way in the Eucharist. So, 
And that's, there's a lot of other things one could say about this. I mean, it's the same. Uh, just, sorry, I mean, I'll, I'll, I told you I might get too excited and knock my uh, laptop off my Kleenex <laughs> box here. But so, you know, if one prays the liturgy of the hours or listens to the collects at the beginning of Mass, they're either prayers to the Father through the Son and in the name of the Son, or sometimes they're prayers to the Son who lives and reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's the basic pattern of Christian prayer, okay, either to the Father in the Son or to the Son with the Father in the Holy Spirit. Um, and Christians know this, okay, I mean, uh, you know, people, people who are active as, as Christians, even if they have no, you know, theological training or anything like that, they know how to pray. And they know how to call upon the Father the way the church does in the Eucharist. Um, so that to me is an important sort of antidote to the kind of worry that someone like Rahner has. You know, he says, and I think I quoted this in the in the lecture, that you know, scholastic theology, or at least what he calls handbook or manual theology, which I think he has a very undeservedly bad reputation. I could say more about that if you want. Um, <laughs> you know, scholastic or manual theology has turned Christians into mere monotheists, you know, who can't, who have no sort of Trinitarian sense. Well, I'd say exactly the opposite, but they may not be able to give any kind of account of the Trinity, you know, or they may think, you know, it's like ice cubes and melting and turning into steam or something, um, you know, which it most certainly is not. But um, But they still know how to pray. You know, and they they go to mass, and they they know they know they they know what is happening in the Eucharist at some in, I think deep intuitive level. Um, you know, the burden of proof is on the idea that they don't know this. Okay, um, so you know we shouldn't confuse the ability to articulate in a theologically precise way the content of the mystery with the ability to live within that mystery in a genuine and 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 quite profound way. I already mentioned St. Therese, right? If I had a sort of confusion about the Trinity and I asked her about it, I would I would follow whatever she told me to do. Okay. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, if I'm if she told me don't stop thinking about this, I'd say, okay, you know, I mean <laughs> uh or she said, you know, you're thinking about this too much, do this instead. Absolutely. All right. Because she lived in the Trinity much more profoundly than I do. Right. Uh, she knew how to pray. Um, uh, and, has, of course, shared that with the church um, or St. Elizabeth of the Trinity uh, is, is another another wonderful uh, embodiment of that. So all this is, is simply to say that the Trinity is, first of all, the mystery at the heart of Christian life and Christian worship of the liturgy of the mass. Um, and it's because the Trinity, the triune God opens up his life to us in the mass uh, and in prayer that we need to think about that in theology. And I think that's what St. Thomas is doing, okay? You opened with a prayer of his. I think might not the, the recording might not have been on when you, when you, when you offered that prayer. Um, but it's a prayer of, of, a, of, a, of any Christian heart, you know? Help me to, to know you truly and to be attentive uh, to what you teach. 
Um, and that's first of all in worship and in prayer. Okay, so thanks, thanks so much. I have maybe two concluding thoughts, and then I'll just send it back to you for for a final word. Okay. Um, but first, yeah, just a word of thank you for yeah helping helping me and helping the listener to formulate this idea of kind of like theological charity or uh, argumentative sympathy, because yeah. I think it's super helpful uh, for overcoming certain problematics which beset 21st century discourse. But I think it's also super fruitful for just our sanctification, our ongoing conversion as Christians. Yeah. Um, because I think that it it makes for object-oriented discourse rather than like mere polemics or controversy. Sometimes we define our position by contrast to the other right. when we haven't actually inquired into the nature of things. Right. But one must, you know, yeah. one absolutely. So I'm thinking about, you know, von Balthasar, I've been encouraged by Father Gilles mm -hmm. to read widely um, this, not this semester, but next semester, because there are going to be certain delays when, you know, you're trying to deposit a thesis, which mm -hmm. is basically done, but you have to like typeset something every sure. two days. Right. So he's like, you know, get your, get yourself a modicum of mastery and something mm -hmm. parallel to, but which will enrich your appreciation mm -hmm. of the matter at hand. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that's super helpful for me. Good. The other thing too, just another word of thank you is like the vindication of the theological capacity of all Christians. I read the article that you wrote, Quichit Unavatula, this idea that by faith, one can know, genuinely know by participation in the knowledge of God and of the blessed. Um, and, you know, your descriptions of, of St. Therese and St. Elizabeth the Trinity testify to that. So I think that's that just lies very close to the heart of the mission of the Thomistic Institute. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not conquest or dominion. The point right. is ultimately to mediate a knowledge and love of God for all right. those who would approach him. So, right. yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, so I, yes, I, I leave kind of the, the floor to you uh, for if, if you have any final thoughts or final reflections, and then just by way of conclusion, if you could maybe just direct the listener to places where they can um, find some of your your titles and some of your articles, which might be pertinent to the subject. Okay. Um, yeah, so just to uh, follow up a, a little personal uh, comment about the, the habit of charity and discourse. Um, you know, we talked about my teacher, George Lindbeck. Uh, he pounded that into me. Okay, um, I, mean, I, I um, you know, was not inclined. You know, I mean, I was inclined to be more polemical. Um, and you know, thanks be to God. I mean, he he just wouldn't have it. You know, and I remember turning in my first chapter of my dissertation, and he said, you know, he thought the argument was pretty good, although it needed some work. But you have not done justice to Ronner here. You. I, I think I agree with you, but you've got to go back and do more justice to Ronner. And I'm not going to accept this if you don't. All right. So, uh, I mean, he didn't put it quite that bluntly. He was a rather understated guy, um, but it was very clear. <laughs> it was very clear. And, you know, it sunk in, you know, and my own students have, you know, kindly said to me that that, that is always, you know, something I've passed on then to them. So I agree with you completely. It's just so so important to, you know, especially for contemporary theology, but also in the polemicized and conflicted contemporary world that we have an object-oriented, or if you prefer a reality-oriented discourse, where we can together seek a deeper understanding of the realities that matter the most, um, instead of a, a defining of ourselves over against. I think that's, that's, um, that's just hugely important. Um, I am working as we speak on a book on, um, on faith and reason, 
which will build on some of the, um, the articles that you mentioned. So you you mentioned the piece that, that came out some years ago, um, which was had a Latin title, Quocit Una Vitula, which is uh, taking off from St. Thomas, who says in a remarkable passage that um, the theology, or sacra doctrina in his, in his precise term, um, uh, is um, an intellectual enterprise, this is my paraphrase of what he says, that simply attempts to capture or recapture, would be a better way to put it, in, in, the, in the mode of, of conceptual and, and precise discourse, uh, what any old woman, any vetula, the Latin for old woman, uh, old crone, you know, knows if she's a faithful Catholic. Um, so theology is really beholden to um, the faith of, of, of the illiterate, you know, St. Thomas's, you know, cleaning lady. Okay, I mean the uh, the the illiterate Neapolitan folks that he gave his his you know sermons on the creed to uh, uh, probably toward the end of his life. Um, it's their faith that we're you know that we share and that we try to understand theologically. And so the book I'm writing is, uh, is called uh, The Primacy of Christ, Faith, Reason, and the Cross. And it includes a kind of expanded version of that article you mentioned uh, and some other articles that, um, that I've written on, um, on faith and reason, on the Trinity in relation to faith and reason. Uh, it's going to be published by um, William B. Erdman's, an important theological publisher that um, has also published uh, other Catholic writers like uh, Khaled Anatolios and, and Fritz Bauerschmidt. Um, so um, God willing, that'll be out uh, sometime next year. Um, uh, so that would be a good place to look. In fact, my um, uh, two of my former students um, uh urged me strongly uh, to do this because they said we can't find people can't find your articles you know they have to go look in obscure places so, so put them <laughs> into a book you know but uh, I'm too much of a perfectionist you know from my also part of my heritage with my teachers that we've talked about um, so I couldn't just sort of compile them you know I had said no, I got to do more work on them um, but my, these two former students uh, Adam Benward and Avi Maria and uh, David Moser Jesus up in Iowa um, they're, they're saying, no, no, I'm, we're giving you deadlines. Okay. You have to get these to us and, <laughs> and, uh, and we'll work through them and we'll make sure they get out. So that book, I hope will be out, uh, about a year from now. Wonderful. Great. Well, I will look forward to reading that. Um, and, uh, I'll look forward to, yeah, future conversations, hopefully at Thomistic Institute conferences and in days to come. Uh, turning then to the listener. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of off-campus conversations. If you haven't yet, Please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. So that way you get updates when future things come out on the channel. Uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for, for us uh, in our theological work and our lives beyond. And then we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. Cheers. Cheers.